Welcome back to the Ace and Swish podcast. We discuss all things sports and debate. I'm Ace. And I'm Swish. And today, we have a special end of the year episode for you. Before diving into this week's stories, we'll first dive through of last week's major sports topics. Let's go to baseball and discuss another blockbuster signing made by the Los Angeles Dodgers again. And to add to their surplus of talent, the aid of Shohei Otani's recruiting, they signed Japanese pitcher Yoshinobu Yamamoto, a pitcher who hasn't even thrown a pitch in the majors to a 12-year, $325 million contract outbidding teams such as the Yankees, Mets, and Giants. The Dodgers have spent over $1 billion in free agency this season. Other MLB teams combined have spent less than that. And now they're the clear favorites heading into the 2024 season and have a scary lineup to look at. Before we dive into how good this makes the Dodgers, we have to talk about whether this is actually good for baseball. The Dodgers have spent so much money over the last year ensuring they're a perennial contender, and now they're spending of over $1 billion to land two stars, one coming off of an injury and the other simply as prospect. Is this bad for baseball, and does it limit smaller market teams from competing? Well, baseball is obviously different from the other major sports because sport does not have a salary cap, meaning a limit, or a salary floor, meaning a minimum you have to spend. Therefore, a team's ability to spend is highly based upon how much revenue they bring in a year and the market they're in and how much interest is generated in terms of baseball in their city. The Dodgers are clearly one of the most popular baseball teams in the world, along with the Yankees and the Mets, and therefore they can spend a lot without worrying about whether they'll make a profit. That's bound to happen in Los Angeles with exceptionally high ticket prices. Meanwhile, other teams' owners can spend money on free agents, but they're reluctant to because they're not likely to make a profit off of it because they're in that smaller market. And this is like some criticism from some fans who want a salary floor, meaning a team has to spend a minimum of X amount of money each year. However, I don't think this works without a salary cap. Under the idea of a salary floor, the small market teams probably still won't go after big name free agents because the Dodgers and the Yankees can still easily outbid them on those big names. Therefore, in that scenario, the small market teams, instead of going after better players, likely resort to overpaying some of their own guys to get to the salary floor amount. A salary cap likely will never be added to baseball because the players will be opposed to it as they want higher salaries and more opportunities rather than a limit on it. The only way I do see a salary cap being added is if the Dodgers win so much that the players are forced into seeing that a salary cap is best for parity of the game. The good news is that the MLB's unique playoff format allows for smaller market teams to have a lightning in the bottle kind of chance to win a World Series. And that big market contenders, no matter how formidable, no matter how much they spend on free agents, can still go down. Just look at the Yankees and the Padres missing the playoffs this season, the Dodgers being ousted by the Diamondbacks so early, and the Mets having to pay $101 million in luxury tax for a team that finished fourth in their division. 
The problem is small market teams don't have the money to keep their players and sign big money free agents, leading to a gap in how long a team can be competitive and sustain their success. I agree. It's just how baseball works in the state of the game. This is a sad situation for small market teams. However, the Dodgers really good. Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, Yamamata, Shohei, Tyler Glasnow, Will Smith, and a bunch of other really good players on the same team is tantalizing. They're clearly the favorites and will be a big draw from the first pitch this season. Man, it's terrifying. It's hard to envision a team knocking them off in a playoff series, but at least teams can take some solace in the fact that the Dodgers signings come with risk. Yamamoto is a very slight pitching prospect at 5'10", and a little over 170 pounds, leading to some durability concerns. And Shohei is coming off of surgery and won't be able to pitch next year. The Dodgers will be incredibly hard, but at least they're not undefeatable. Agree. Let's move on to previewing the college football playoff. On Monday, Michigan, Texas, and Alabama will play for a spot in the national championship game. Let's start with the first game, the Rose Bowl. Michigan and Alabama will play for the first time in a few years, but this time in a playoff set. It's basically a coin toss. Who do you have, Swish? Ace, I can't bet against Nick Saban with a month to prepare and play in the college football playoff. These teams are about evenly matched, but Alabama has a more extensive playoff history of success than Michigan, and they understand what it takes to win. Michigan may be able to get some pressure on Jalen Miller, but I don't think they can contain his dual threat ability and skill at evading slow defensive linemen. With Michigan a bit banged up on the offensive line with Zach Zinter out with a broken leg, I think Alabama has a slight edge in stopping Blake Quorum. Quorum still may produce, but I'm not sure Michigan can keep pace with Alabama's deep ball offense simply by running on the ground. And I'm not sure J.J. McCarthy can pass when it matters most. His best game is to come against clearly inferior competition in the Big Ten, and Alabama's clearly no slouch on defense. With all that considered, I think one way or another, Alabama finds a way to win. I agree. Just because I think Alabama has a better coach. What about Washington and Texas? This one features Steve Sarkeesian going up against his former team in Washington in the battle of two elite quarterbacks in Quinn Ewers and Michael Penix Jr. I think Washington going through the Pac-12 is really going to help them this year. They're battle-tested because they went through so many tough opponents, and they've been in close games all year. It will be an offensive shootout as both teams are among the best in the country at scoring. But for these kinds of even matchups, I'm going to lean on my premonition. And I like Washington's mindset and mental makeup going into this game. I've got Texas. I think Sarkeesian would be motivated to beat his former team. And I think Texas has great momentum going into this after dominating Oklahoma State. Plus, when you take into consideration Washington struggled and sleepwalked against inferior teams like Stanford and Arizona State, I think Texas will have a great start to the game and jump out to a lead from the both college football playoff games should be very entertaining, however. 
The Knicks and Raptors agreed to a deal for Toronto to give up OG and Anobi, Precious Achua, and Malachi Flynn for RJ Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, and a second round pick. Thoughts on this trade, Swish? It's a big move for the Knicks, though I think it's a bit of a risk with OG eligible to leave in this offseason. But he is about the quintessential role player and all-defense caliber defender who has been taking and making volume threes. The Knicks will appreciate his size and versatility in the playoffs against the East. Super big wings like Tatum and Jimmy, all those guys. However, giving up Barrett and quickly for a really good role player, not necessarily a star, is a bit tough. Barrett never found consistency in his time in New York, but he still has potential and quickly has massive upside with his electric bench scoring. This is a good return for Toronto and a pretty good addition for New York. The good thing for the Knicks is that they may not be done making moves to shore up their roster. They gave up no first-round picks, meaning they could add another high-level contributor this trade season. I'm happy that RJ Barrett will get to go to his home country. It may not be the cleanest fit with the Raptors, but he'll be able to develop in a better environment. We'll see if the Raptors end up shipping Pascal Siakam at some point later as well. Let's move to some NFL news. The Broncos, with very minimal playoff chances, have decided to bench Russell Wilson. Sean Payton has said the move to switch to former New England Patriots quarterback, Jarrett Stidham, was strictly based on football. But it has generated plenty of criticism considering the Broncos benching Russ helps them financially more than anything. Swish, what are your thoughts on this move? Well, from a business perspective, it makes sense, but this move just shows a tenuous relationship between Russ and the Broncos. There's been no winnings after the Broncos pointed up for him in a blockbuster trade, and plenty of attention has surrounded the team over these past two years as a result. I don't expect Russ to return to Denver after this season, but I do think one team without a quarterback for next year may take a chance on him. For the Broncos... Their lack of assets and then being in the same division as the Chiefs will basically perpetually be at least decent for the next 10 years makes me think there isn't much of a path towards contention in the AFC in the near future. It's a shame that Russ was informed that the Broncos were going to bench him for contract reasons during the team's bye week after they had just beat the defending Super Bowl champs with the Chiefs. The business of the NFL is cruel. While Russ's career seems to be trending in the wrong direction, one quarterback's career has elevated. Joe Flacco. He's led the Browns to a playoff spot after dismantling his former team in the Jets. Great friend. Now Flacco has shown the Browns are a legit hurdle to go through in the playoffs with a legit quarterback. His arm strength has made the Browns a much more dynamic offense going downfield, and with that comes a good amount of interceptions but the production is no joke with the scheme intact. It is very true that Flacco approaching his 39th birthday could potentially plateau like some other quarterbacks we've seen this season, uh, like DeVito, Tommy Cutlets, and Joshua Dodge, for example. However, he's also one of the more experienced quarterbacks in the league and has shown no signs of having to be low-managed during games. Considering that, the Browns, they might have a real chance to make the season a success. Do you think Flacco's good run hinders Deshaun Watson's future with the team? 
I doubt that is. Flacco is a great reclamation project, but he's going to be 39, and he's not exactly a quarterback to build a Super Bowl contender around. Flacco really is just auditioning for the NFL to analyze whether he's still a starting quarterback beyond the season that can be used to teams devoid of him. Agree. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed. Make sure to drop a follow on this podcast or else. Peace.